Hello, my name is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. People demanded it, and by people, who demanded? <laughs> I mean uh, us, because we want the hits. We're doing an episode on Sir Christopher Nolan. The first part is the pledge. <laughs> <laughs> so. Chris Nolan. He's a director. What is there to say? Yeah. Uh, like, what? This is not virgin terrain, is No. It? Uh, everyone's been over this. There's no way that we can say anything about him that won't come across as received wisdom. So we're going to do what only we can do, and is talk about him in the context of us being teenagers and getting into his films. Yeah, so uh, when did... You were a fan of Christopher Nolan as of a course. teenager. Yeah, Memento. Every, every, every male, white, yeah. upper middle class teenage boy is a Christopher Nolan it's fan. It's Fight Club, Memento and i don't know what is it a snatch i guess that you have up in your I dorm guess, i guess i guess um and you know uh along came batman begins oh yeah uh, and batman begins was so much fun when it came out because you know for for us as very smart teenagers we were like finally somebody is taking the batman seriously so that's what we should say right off the bat of what does Christopher Nolan represent and what is he actually? I think he represents seriousness. Yes. He represents blockbusters with brains. He represents none of that, none of that goofy, like Luke Basson bullshit. None of that Marvel comics idiocy. Let's let's have themes, ideas. He's the filmmaker that's loved by teenagers who want their love of film to be validated. Yes. Because he's making movies. That are smart, that are twisty, that do more than movies can usually do. And that is represented perfectly with Memento, Mm -hmm. which is the movie that, as a teenager, you see and you're like, whoa, my mind is blown. This film is shown backwards. Why do you think uh, his fans love him so much? Because... The, the love that his fans have for him is interesting because they're out there every time a critic gives his movie two stars. They're out there doing death threats, uh, calling women cunts, you know, well, ter- terrible things. I think those fans usually come from the Batman side, right? Mm-hmm. Because Batman fans tend to be a very obsessive lot. Mm-hmm. And, and they have strong ideas about what the character should be. Yes, and I think that what the Christopher Nolan Batman films do is kind of solidify the fact that this character can be serious, he can be realistic. Now, whether those films represent that or not is another matter. And that when a critic comes in and says, oh, well, this is not good, that kind of shatters a fan's uh, perception, right? Or not shatter them, just kind of tell them what you like is not good. Yeah, and they hear the voices of, like, their parents or their school teachers saying, oh, Batman, that's kid stuff. Exactly. And I think that's what hurts them the most and causes them to lash out. And I think it's those Batman films and that fandom that has extended beyond those superhero pictures into Interstellar and Mm -hmm. even Dunkirk right now. But I also think there's something about the plots of his movies that really appeals to these people. Uh, Because it makes them feel smart. Yeah, like, because they have this puzzle box uh, narrative thing where you have to pay extra attention to it, you know, yeah, you feel smart for being able to follow it. But also, so many of Nolan's movies are about uh, brilliant, solitary men Mm -hmm. who... White men. 
white men who see the world for what it really is and yes. are and they're realistic yes that's you know? right even though that films like memento show that that man to be flawed yeah and to be wrong and so does the prestige yeah but but ultimately like doesn't memento kind of come down on on the side of does it even matter if the guy kills the right guy it doesn't yeah because the world is still there and it's just his perception of it that matters yeah vote trump <laughs> <laughs> No, none of that, Will. None of that. <laughs> uh, so, Memento, you like it? Oh, love Memento. Yeah. I watched it today. And it was one of those movies that I went, <sighs> I don't want to watch Memento. Like, I've seen it so many times when I was a teenager. Like, do I need to watch it again? Guess what? Still holds up. Does it? Good movie. Yep. I've seen it, like, a few... I think I saw it in class at one point. I saw it on my own, of yeah. course. I maybe saw it with a friend. Um, I don't think it's a movie that necessarily rewards repeated viewings. I thought it did when I watched it. Maybe I haven't seen it in, like seven eight years yeah. so it felt fresh even though i knew all the beats that were coming but it's like i think the novelty of the storytelling style it's like it'll never be as good maybe this is just my opinion but yeah. it'll be never as good as the first viewing where you're figuring it out well i think that what memento does very well is that the story that it's telling one of like revenge that guy pierce's character wants to find the killer mm -hmm. of his wife and the person that robbed him of being able to um create new memories works in a sense that the film is constantly questioning its own premise and finding new ways to approach it whether it's a character going you will never remember this mm. so i can tell you all this stuff and then when we come back yeah that's it's going to be completely different or like starting in the middle of an action scene and being like wait am i chasing someone no no i'm being chased mm -hmm. or it's just the like recontextualizing of stuff that i felt that even though i knew where the story was going was still fun for me watching it on this viewing. Oh, you know what else? This this just occurred to me. Uh, what else I think some of his fans like about him? These fans seem to get really caught up in like the Rotten Tomatoes score. They want that perfect 100% yeah. score. And it, it speaks to uh, an intellectual insecurity. They really value consensus and... I think maybe a lot of people have this. They like to think that there are a couple of things that are absolutes that yes. they can depend on. And like the Dark Knight is absolutely good. And if you don't think it's good, then you're, you're just purposely contrarian. And the thing about that is, like I said before, it extends to the rest of his movies, right? Because if mm -hmm. the Dark Knight is a perfect movie, it's not. It has tons no. of flaws. <laughs> yeah. Then that means that everything Christopher Nolan makes from yeah. that point on must also be perfect. Yeah. Um, and Christopher Nolan... And the people who market him have been able to successfully put him forward as this kind of heir to Kubrick of this master craftsman. In uh, control of everything. He's got everything figured out. Yeah. And if, if something seems wrong, that's because you're not smart enough. I don't think Christopher Nolan is anywhere near the equal of Kubrick. <laughs> uh, so we should talk about where Christopher Nolan came from, because I think that's interesting in that he didn't come from money, which you would assume I'm, watching his film. I'm surprised to hear that. Wow. He, he came from a kind of a working class family. Uh, he always wanted to make films since he was a kid. Classic love Star Wars. And the following, his first film, was made on weekends. Uh, his wife was the producer who's produced all of his films from that point on. Made with friends that he made through film societies and stuff like that. And it cost 3,500 pounds. And the story goes that... They rehearsed it so well that they only ever had to do one take for everything, which is like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, I've made movies. I don't believe that. <laughs> and But that plays into his mystique, right? Mm. And the following is that kernel of all the rest of his work, which is a twisty narrative that, oh, you think what's going on, but really you don't because things have been time shifted. You know, the puzzle box structure of his movies is fun to follow, but... 
uh, every time I see one, I get the suspicion that it doesn't really add up to much. And by the time the movie is over, I always have this feeling of, huh, that's clever, but is is that it? Yes. Because I don't think the structure of the movie, the structure of the movies is fun in the, in the way that like a Sudoku is fun, mm. but it doesn't reveal anything like the themes are always laid out in his movies and big clunky monologues I, so you don't need the structure to elucidate the themes i uh enjoy the following don't love it watched it a few days ago and i went yeah okay i can see why it's not a movie that i revisit very often i had a pretty good time with it i, wa- I just watched it today for the first mm-hmm. time um and i thought it was 70 minutes and it was <laughs> it was fun and it was in and out and it is it had a kind of nifty like little uh twisty plot and it's such a miserable film though which is like but it also had a little bit more of a spark of life that some Mm. of his later films don't like i think uh, like the guy who plays the main guy the guy who follows people uh has this mumbly quality that is distinct from the i think over rehearsed quality of some of his later films. which is funny considering that nolan said that he rehearsed to the point that they could do it only one take or maybe they only had that one take so whatever performance he gave the one that he had to keep but some of the later ones are uh christian bale delivering a long monologue (laughs) that sounds like he's reciting it off a cue card (laughs) but like i think that that energy of the following is crystallized the memento into a more um successful form that he's again telling like a noir story but this time he's doing these cinematic backflips to tell you it Mm -hmm. while still having a protagonist in Guy Pearce that is very endearing and can have parts of humor that's the thing about Christopher Nolan films is that he is solidified as this humorless director whose Mm -hmm. films are just kind of very cold emotionless experiences which I don't think is necessarily the case even though that that is the image that has been portrayed of him. I think the humor in his films after Batman Begins is always terrible. Do you? Always the worst part of his films. <laughs> you, I have you, a funny gag in The Prestige where Christian Bale um, does a magic trick and locks one of the prison guards to the table. Yeah, all right. But uh, I'm thinking of The Dark Knight Rises, which I know you revisited this week. Ugh. It has some of the just worst bits of comedy, like when uh, Catwoman and Hammer in the Batplane and she says, my mother warned me about getting into cars with strange men. And he goes, this isn't a car. And then you see it's a plane. Or, or what about that? <laughs> the scene? classic bit where he's standing on the rooftop talking to Catwoman, oh. turns his head and she's gone. And he goes, I guess that's what that feels like. Terrible. <laughs> After Memento, which was kind of a critical, probably Sundance uh, darling. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. It got an Oscar nomination for screenplay. He ended up directing a forgotten film to the sands <laughs> of time, which was a remake of Insomnia. Yes. And it has the uh, notable pedigree of starring Robin Williams in a villainous turn. And uh, Mr. Albert Pacino <laughs> as, as the cop. That's right. I saw this movie shortly after it came out, thought it was fun, and have not thought about it since until now. The only thing that I distinctly remember about uh, the film is that on the DVD, Christopher Nolan does a commentary track in the chronological order that the film was shot. Wow. So he's talking through these clips and taking you through a journey that he took himself. So like the first scene you see in the commentary is the first scene that they shot. That's kind of interesting. Yes. Uh, I'm sure it's probably a little bit dull and kind of monotone Uh, in its delivery. Man, the master of twists. (laughs) Uh, I was doing some research uh, about his films online and supposedly the fairly dull commentary on Memento, if you hit certain buttons at the end, 
the commentary has an alternate ending, like three different choices. Okay, so he's William Castle. <laughs> yes. But like, why would I go into this? I mean, Memento, the DVD, has a special feature that you can watch the film in chronological order, but only if you hit like five, four, nine over the end credits. I remember like, people saying that DVD was so hard to open. Uh, it is hard to open and it's all busted. <laughs> yeah, so who the fuck wants that? <laughs> uh, Insomnia does have an interesting bit of trivia that the fact that the person who got him the job was Steven Soderbergh. Hmm. who they wanted a different director for Insomnia. And he's like, no, 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 you yes. should get Christopher Nolan to do this. And like Dr. Frankenstein creating his monster, <laughs> he would eventually come to regret. You think they still hang out? Ah, probably. Yeah, maybe. Know. They're both kind of like cold guys who make uh, formalist experiments. Well, I, once again, I don't... I like Soderbergh better. I don't think that Nolan is that cold. Like, what films <clears throat> of his are cold? Dunkirk. A little bit. I think it's fairly emotional in the way that it goes and presents stuff. Same thing with Interstellar, which has, like, the famous scene that has been memed into the ground of <laughs> Matthew McConaughey <laughs> crying over yeah. a video of his children. Or even Inception, which has Leonardo DiCaprio doing the hilarious, no! <laughs> after his wife commits suicide. You, you talk about Christopher Nolan commentaries, and I was just thinking about how much I don't want to listen to one of those because Christopher Nolan strikes me as somebody whose company I would not enjoy. I don't like the worldview presented in his films. And what's the worldview presented in his films? This kind of uh, Hobbesian worldview. Mm -hmm. Hobbesian with a little bit of, in Interstellar, with a little bit of Ayn Rand. Yes. Like in Interstellar when uh, Matthew McConaughey is like, the, the, the planet is being you know, basically being destroyed by this drought mm -hmm. or is it a dust bowl situation? Yeah. And, uh, and McConaughey is like, uh, what, whatever happened to us? Uh, we, we used to be explorers, not caretakers, which like, I, I, I don't want to get all political, but it sounds a little colonialist to me. <laughs> and, and like Interstellar has a scene where McConaughey goes to his daughter's school and he finds out that at the school in the curriculum, they're teaching the kids that the moon landing was faked. Yeah. And it has a scene kind of like in Uncle Buck when Uncle Buck talks to the principal where McConaughey is like, now listen, I may not have done any fancy book learning yeah. but i know we landed on the moon and it's all this kind of like i mean obviously we're supposed to watch this movie and feel kind of like okay here, here we are in the late obama era yeah. and america are america's glory days behind us and the way to reclaim our glory is to rediscover our pioneer spirit yeah and i think that's dumb okay i think give them a living wage instead <laughs> that is true yeah but i think that what you're critiquing about the movies is a kind of side effect of who he is, right? Yeah, exactly. Is that because... I don't like him. <laughs> he's considered so important and yeah. so great that you're like... Like, you yeah. can single in on those yeah. things. And it's it's not only that, it's, it's that he thinks that the way to reclaim greatness is in this Randian idea of, oh, here's this this great single man, this... Yes. this 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 great visionary who's going to lead us out of it, and if, if society of, would just get out of his fucking way, you're more out of the uh, the collective will of the people, right? Like yeah, a more Chinese yeah, communist. Uh, yeah, I uh, I'm Bane. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to talk about too much about the Dark Knight Rises. I did watch it, much to my chagrin, great for film. this podcast. <laughs> but Will has dedicated what seems like four podcasts to this subject. <laughs> Uh, Dark Knight Rises, not a good movie. What didn't you like about it? My, my thoughts are well documented. Uh, it's incredibly dull. Yes. It's a Batman film that seems to hate Batman. Mm -hmm. And when he does show up, he is defeated almost instantly, <laughs> thrown away. And its politics are so hilariously muddled <laughs> where you're like, what are you trying to say? Well, yeah, it's like 
the idea is... Uh, Do you the, remember when they were going to film Occupy Wall Street guess, protesters and put it in the movie? Uh, I wish they had, just to, like, <laughs> fuck people up even more. But like, They're the problem. The whole thesis of the movie is that the Gotham upper class has let down the people by closing closing the orphanages and not having a social safety net. And so what's the solution to this? Well, we'll give power back to the rich, but they got to be very careful this time and turn Wayne Manor into an orphanage. Yeah. That'll it, fix it. It's the classic Philosopher King scenario, yeah. right? Where, yeah. you know, the will of the people are too chaotic and they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. So you have to give it to some smart people like Batman yeah. who will be able to uh, fix things. Yeah. So I don't like his worldview. But I like Batman Begins. Fun movie. that movie is dumb, fun. I remember Christian Bale uh, describing it at the time as like Batman meets... Uh, 36 Chambers of Shaolin on acid. <laughs> That's so stupid. Why? But That's great! I just don't like it when people say, you know, on acid. To, oh, to talk I get it. That's yeah. fine. But it is, kind of. Kind of. Um, th- this I w- think your Christopher Nolan hate is still bubbling to the surface. Well, any, any slight um, uh, mistake that someone else would make, Nolan, it's magnified <laughs> hundredfold for you. And I'm not even that big of a Christopher Nolan defender. Batman Begins is fun. Uh, it was kind of riding that post-Matrix wave of every yeah. movie's got to have like kung fu stuff in it. So, Love it. So now we find out that after, after 70 years of Batman existing, apparently he actually had like samurai training in in the i thought he always did in the comics did he? yeah okay. he did in I, the yeah he trained in the orient and stuff like that right. so but i i want to just kind of take christopher nolan's technique and in, in batman begins and compare it to batman dark knight rises and that's his uh, approach to action mm-hmm. because in batman begins the action is incomprehensible yes like you do not know what's going on i remember as a kid pausing and going frame by frame through cuts to see, like, is it me? Like, mm-hmm. do I not know what's going on? And it's not me. It's He cuts it in a way where actions don't follow each other in an almost Michael Bay way, if you will, mm. to create more of a sense of feeling as opposed to being able to follow it. But then in The Dark Knight Rises, holy shit. He took the incredibly wrong lesson, which is he pulls the camera far back and shoots all the action is in wides. Mm. So it's boring as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so boring. I remember watching it for the first time and during that big uh, action finale where it's the bat plane and everything yeah. flying through Gotham. I remember being very kind of awed by it, just by the scale of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Christopher Nolan with the dark Knight rises and maybe with some of his other movies, he actually wants to intimidate the audience mm-hmm. by making his films both enormously scaled. And in the case of the dark Knight rises hard to follow. Yes. So it's like hard to follow and he wants it to be hard to follow. He wants it to be, it's purposefully uh, it's like a challenge, obscure. right? Yeah. And, and I think it's a cheap way to make his movie look deeper than it is. Agreed. And I think he's also in, in addition to that, uh, he's guilty of relying on all these kind of like screenwriting 101 gimmicks. Like, uh, you know, there's always like a, a ticking time bomb thing in a lot of his later movies. And he's always doing this thing where he's cutting back and forth between three different incidents going yeah, on at the same time to, to create of, tension. Yeah, to manufacture kind of an artificial drama. I, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, yeah. Dark Knight Rises, once again, is not good. And I think it is a result of a filmmaker forced into the corner of people saying that the the Dark Knight um, was one of the best movies of all time to the point that it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Picture. 
It wasn't. Oh, I thought it was. No, it famous. In, in fact, that's why they expanded it from five movies to <laughs> like actually that that's the reason because the next year after that they expanded it to ten movies. You know what? That's what the internet has done to me. I I believed it had been nominated, but it did win an Oscar for a supporting actor for Heath Ledger. Oh, that's right, famously. Yeah. Uh, and he's very good in the film. Oh, he's great in the movie. I didn't revisit The Dark Knight for this podcast, but I think I would still think it was okay. I I, I remember w- liking it, but not loving it. And I being a little bit confused. At the love for it i was uh, 19 at the time so i was you know pretty uh smart i was pretty smart yep. so i was pretty open to a movie like this mm-hmm. uh and i thought it was great i thought it really caught the zeitgeist i remember it was too long too muddled and not as fun as batman begins i think it really showed that a superhero movie <laughs> could be a real movie too and uh move over heat because we've got the dark knight now well christopher nolan we haven't talked about the fact that one of the reasons that he makes himself feel important is also his obsession with all this technological trickery right mm-hmm. so it's like i'm gonna shoot these scenes in imax yeah and like this hasn't been done on the big screen in forever i'm only gonna shoot film because that's the real format that artists use i admire his advocacy for yeah. film uh, i saw dunkirk in 70 millimeter this week yeah, so did i and i thought it looked beautiful i mean it <coughs> does but it's... well the movie didn't but the film looked, looked great. It, was, <laughs> it was great seeing like the way colors look in 70 millimeter, like yeah. blues and blacks look different. Mm-hmm. So you saw Dunkirk. I saw Dunkirk. I liked Dunkirk. You did not like Dunkirk. Ah, it's not that I didn't like it. I was, I was like right in the middle on it. Yeah. Frankly. I, th- I, I, I guess there's been a debate amongst people who've seen it about whether it's cold mm-hmm. or not. And I had trouble getting invested in the movie. Nolan makes this decision to not endow any of his characters with any kind of backstory. With, Love it. With any really personality. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, kind of respected in the yeah. abstract making it all about their situation but i had trouble had trouble getting invested in it and i had trouble frankly telling these kids apart oh really yes you're like all these white kids look exactly the same well somebody whispered to me that's harry styles well i don't I, and then I, after five minutes i forgot who he was i read a review that was like listen i see harry styles up on screen i can't think of anyone else but harry styles and i'm like well i don't know who that is yeah, so yeah i'm good yeah he's a singer in one direction i guess whoever he was he was fine yeah he was good i think that what i enjoyed the most about that movie is it's obviously a reaction to interstellar which was big and complicated mm-hmm. is that he tried to do something simpler which i'm always a big fan of and the kind of broader strokes the emotional strokes they work on me because i am a simple man my love <laughs> for action films the definition of that is the broad kind of emotional strokes the of storytelling. Yeah, it, yeah. And the, and I love the decision not to show any enemy soldiers. That's great. Sure. Love that. And that at the end of the day, the film was about not fighting in a war, but retreating from a war. Mm. And that like, there's no real combat that's going on in that film, right? It's people that are basically just about to be killed and them just getting out of that situation. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting... Because I remember when the film was coming out, all the stuff I just praise about the film is the stuff that made me go, well, that trailer's boring. I don't want to see that. (laughs) Even though it's weird that for a war film, none of the main characters die. I know people have said, said it, but it's true. It's pretty bloodless. Yeah, it is. Which is kind of a weird decision to do if you're telling three stories and that everybody just makes it fine at the end. Yeah. I also think, this is unrelated, but I also think Christopher Nolan, even though he uses film, he's not a very imaginative visual storyteller. No, I don't think he is. And I think that relates to the fact that he approaches his films, which I read online that he draws a lot of graphs uh, when he talks about story. Uh. And, <laughs> and everything I, about this guy. I think that that's why it's like Inception 
is a film about dreams, right? But the decision he makes <laughs> is, a... is anyway. to ground them all in this kind of blander visual style. Like, there's nothing in Inception that would blow you away in a way that something like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, you'll be like, ah, that's fun. There's nothing like that in Inception. I would take any Nightmare on Elm Street movie except possibly Freddy's Dead <laughs> over Inception. I like Inception. I think it's a lot of fun. I think Inception, uh, I think it's such a wasted opportunity to make a movie about dreams and make it like this. I mean, this is a movie where Leonardo DiCaprio has locked, so we're in Leonardo DiCaprio's mm-hmm. head, and he's yeah. locked his dead wife in the sub basement yeah. of his dream so she can't escape it's like that's not how dreams work <laughs> i think and people dream just like bland office corridors yeah it, but don't they isn't that like people usually dream pretty blandly I, i'm not trying to defend christopher nolan yeah but i can see they don't, they don't dream so literally <laughs> but i can almost see when inception came out uh will sloan on the internet looking at all these reviews come up that are like oh this is like a masterpiece this is blowing my mind and you it just like yeah like the anger kind of like it's like no it's not like why is this the important film yes and also versus jerry lewis it's too long (laughs) jerry lewis is a master he is uh and his films truly are dreamscapes But anyway, continue. Uh, it's it, it just too long. And also the first hour of it is just unbelievably clunky. Just one long speech explaining the parameters of the dreamscape over and over and over again. And it also does, I think, the greatest sin in the eyes of Will Sloan is that it thinks it's smart and it's dumb. Yes. Yes. And also no sex. <laughs> Can I just say this about all of his movies? No yeah, sex. There's no sex. Where's the sex? Which is funny because he does produce all the films with his wife. Yeah. So you'd think they'd bring like a little bit more steam. I just think it's interesting. You know, he's made like what, seven or eight movies now? Yeah. Except for Batman, you know, lingering in the afterglow with Marion Cotillard <laughs> in the last in the last one. Yeah. Uh, but you want some like on screen fucking, right? Yeah, full penetration. <laughs> <laughs> the Christopher Nolan is the kind of man that would be listen, if I'm gonna tackle the subject, I haven't done it for you know, all my previous films. I'm going to do it real. Well, I just, like, when I think of um, Inception, I just think of that scene where Ellen Page and Joseph Gordon-Levitt have that awkward kiss. and, I, and Filmed by a 12-year-old boy who's never kissed a woman. Wa- watching that and thinking, oh, yeah, that's weird that this is the closest thing to kind of like a romantic thing in the movie. <laughs> Despite everything I've said about Christopher Nolan in this episode, he's the kind of guy that you want to like because, as we're so relentlessly told over and over again... He's great. He's great. And, <laughs> and also, uh, he's... The only guy who's making films at this level that aren't franchise movies mm-hmm. and that are like personal films in some way. Mm-hmm. So what do you think of that? Uh, I think that it's a noble effort and you don't have to see his movies if you don't like them, <laughs> but you will because of course. Uh, if you care about movies, you got to yeah. reckon with Christopher Nolan. And, but I think that the damage Christopher Nolan has done <laughs> is with the Batman movies, especially Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. For a long time, we were getting superhero movies that were all about, this ain't just for kids anymore. Yeah. And I think that's a very toxic and horrible way to approach these kind of properties. <laughs> and I'm glad that now that's pretty much over. You know, Batman. Now we're getting Deadpool instead, <laughs> where, where it's like he's a superhero, but he jokes about cum. <laughs> Uh, that's not what I was talking about. I was That's what I'm talking more, about. Um, stuff like Wonder Woman or sure. Spider-Man Homecoming. Where yeah, it's, yeah, like, more, it's fun, more right? upbeat stuff. I like Spider-Man Homecoming. I just want to say that on the air. <laughs> Before um, I wheel you off back to your old folks home where <laughs> yeah. we keep you. Uh, all right. So, yeah, Christopher Nolan, please don't send us your email. <laughs> Let's get some one-star reviews on iTunes no! right now. No, please, no. Do we have any letters this week? Yes, we do. This letter is from... 
Eddie Averill, and it goes, Hey guys, I've been loving the podcast. The Edgar G. Elmore episode led me to some great films. Oh, Detour, thank you. of course. Thank Isn't you. Isn't it hilarious <laughs> that the Edgar G. Elmore episode was one that we were like, I don't know if we should do it. Nobody will know who he is. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, it's the uh, episode that we get the most mail about, that people love Detour. I love it. I love it. Uh, he goes, would love an episode on Hong Sang-soo sometime, or a more popular pick, Paul Thomas Anderson. Keep up the good work, Eddie. Let's do Paul Thomas Anderson when his new movie comes out. Yeah, the one with um, the Daniel final Day. performance yeah. of Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. let's do that. All right. right on those coattails. And Hong Sang-soo, um, I don't know, maybe. I like him. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what I would say about it. We'll put him in the box. That's right. Put it in the box. Yeah. And we also have a letter from longtime listener and friend of the podcast, Andrew Barr, which I mentioned on the previous episode. Hey, Justin. Listening to you guys talk about Fan Expo, I just thought I'd point out that if you did make eye contact with me at my booth, I probably didn't guilt you into buying my book, (laughs) which is what I said about last week. I tend to not actually say much to people who stop at my table unless they start talking to me. Probably one of the reasons I don't do many conventions. I don't like when people bug me to buy their stuff on the convention floor, so I don't like to bug people who stop at my table. You bought my stuff because you wanted to, or to try and impress me for some reason. (laughs) See you at Horrorama, where me and Andrew will be sharing a table. (laughs) Thank you, Andrew Barr. Well, you must feel pretty guilty now. Nah, not really. I'm 100% sure that I probably picked up his book and went, oh, this looks cool. And he went, oh, yeah. And just those two words were like, oh, man, better buy this guy's books now. And you know what? They were tons of fun. Go visit Andrew Barr, yeah. <laughs> official website, and buy his product. I, I do that all the time when I'm when I'm out at things, if I make eye contact. Yeah, just eye contact, right? It doesn't yeah. even need to be talking. If they're not guilting. No, yeah. It's, you, all, it's all me. It, it's all me. And it's like, oh, I feel a little bit bad about this person. Also, if you're in Toronto, by the way, uh, stop by the Royal Cinema and see all of Andrew Barr's art up there on the wall. It's basically the Andrew Barr art installation at this point. Because he does amazing posters for all the series that are shown at the Royal Cinema. He did a bunch of laser blast ones. And he's also, uh, I've been enjoying Andrew's Facebook page lately because he's been watching all the Ernest movies, and <laughs> putting his, including the really deep cut ones like Your World As I See It. And... When Andrew goes into a subject, he will keep going down. Like he watched all the Puppet Master films as well. Oh, man. Uh, so like we said last week, we're doing a contest for Patreon subscribers this month. You could win one of three prizes, which include a copy of a movie that I made, uh, all the zines that I published about six issues that are not available anywhere at the moment and feature exclusive writing by will sloan and uh mystery prize that will include a batman forever unopened trading card pack oh man and i'm not talking about a box like it's like 12 trading cards but they're from the original release of, the film. <laughs> of batman it's not forever. some yes, hipster reprint and you know a lot of people joined uh i really appreciate it your name's going in the box to have the prize picked at the end of next week but me and Will have something even um, more uh, tantalizing to put on the table, which is we have 35 Patreon subscribers right now. If we get 50 Patreon subscribers by the end of the week, that gives you, if you're listening the to this. end of the week? Yeah, Thursday. You know, right. it has to be by the end of the month. Okay. So that's why, Will, it's really hard for them to do. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got <laughs> because it. if you guys do that, someone commented on Patreon uh, about the fact that they would love for us to do an episode on the Stephen Odenkirk thumb movies. <laughs> so we did an episode on Patreon about Kung Pao Enter the Fist. 
great film. Stephen Odenkirk, uh, the director of that film and star and writer, is famous for making <laughs> those movies that are thumbed with faces. You know you saw them at Rogers and Blockbuster. There's no way you didn't, right? That thumb, a thumb tannic. Uh, uh, the Blair Thumb Project. Uh, oh, God. I think there's six or seven of them, and they're 20 minutes each. And if we get 50 Patreon subscribers by the end of this week, me and Will will do a Patreon episode on the thumb films. And that means me and Will are going to watch all of them. <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> please don't. Yeah, please don't. <laughs> but that means we need 15 people need to hand over $5 a month. Do you think that's going to happen? I hope not. <laughs> you know, you and I, like a year ago, watched uh, The Blair Thumb. Oh my God. It's one of the worst like, things I've ever seen. I fell asleep and kept waking up, and I'm like, how is this not over <laughs> It's yet? only 20, 20 minutes, minutes long. <laughs> We're going to uh, have to watch them all. Oh, hey, on the Patreon this week, we examine uh, the cinema du Brett Ratner uh, with uh, Rush Hour. So for all the people that keep going, oh, I can't wait for that Jackie Chan episode, we've recorded a 20-something minute episode on Rush Hour, so you can get your taste right there. Yeah. So what are we doing next week? Next week, we're going to be doing the filmmaker that I did a trade-off for Christopher Nolan, <laughs> which was Will went, listen, if you do Christopher Nolan, we'll do Ernest Dickerson, who is the director of Juice, uh, the film that starred Tupac Shakur, uh, Demon Knight, a great... Starring Dick Miller. Yeah, um, horror comedy that was Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. And he's probably most famous for being a cinematographer of all of Spike Lee's early works. Mm. So, like, Do the Right Thing, She's Gotta Have It, and his final um, project with him, which was Malcolm X. He also directed Bulletproof with Adam Sandler. Guess what? I watched it this week. Uh, don't say what you thought <laughs> no, about. Yeah, you gotta I'm, say it for next week. I gotta say it for next week. And he's an interesting filmmaker that actually kind of went from a director of studio pictures to mostly doing television. Most famously, he directs a lot of big episodes of The Walking Dead, mm. the show that I do not watch. Okay. But there were some great letters. Did you see those from Frank Darabont? Being like, I just watched The Rushes for this episode, and did the director have a stroke or something? Like, it doesn't look like that they're able to direct at all. You can see all these letters that Frank Darabont wrote that were released in the court case that's currently going on. Oh, wonderful. So that's what we're going to do next week, an episode on Ernest Dickerson. And until then, you can ask us any questions, comments, at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And, and my final plug, my partner, Emily Milling, is currently producing a web series that is doing a crowdfunding campaign called Allie and Lara Make a Horror Movie about two women that try to make a horror movie. It's really all there in the title. And uh, they're coming down to the final days. So if you could just check it out and it looks interesting to you, feel free to donate a little bit, a bit of money. My name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. The last part is the... Oh, what is the... What is the... The, <laughs> the, pre the Prestige. Oh, man. We didn't even fucking talk about The Prestige and we both watched it. That's... We don't need to. Oh, okay. So you had some adventures out of the city of Toronto this week. I went to Montreal for the Fantasia Film Festival, but I went because... Larry Cohen, the director of such films as Q, the Winged Serpent, and The Stuff. Previous Important Cinema Club subject. Was being presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award, and they were showing a documentary about him called King Cohen. And he was being reunited on stage with the Dietrich to his Von Sternberg, the Klaus Kinski to his Werner Herzog, Michael Moriarty. Every 
one's favorite cranky Republican uncle. <laughs> yes, but a late in life Republican. Yeah, yeah. And I will right. say that uh, when Larry Cohen badmouthed Trump on stage, uh, Michael Moriarty didn't say anything. Huh, I guess he was just being polite. <laughs> yeah, uh, but Michael Moriarty, I think, is a great actor. Oh, uh, fantastic does, actor. Doesn't have all of his marbles. Listeners should go on YouTube and look up an appearance by Michael Moriarty on Open Mic with Mike Bullard from, I think, oh, 1998. Boy. Oh, it's unbelievable. Seeing the two of them on stage was just... Brought uh, a tear to your eye. It, it basically did. It was yeah. just such a thrill. Michael Moriarty read a tribute to Larry Cohen, calling him the best director he's ever worked with. Wow. They did some... And calling Q the Winged Serpent the best performance he did in film. Uh, they did some shtick on stage together, some grumpy old men shtick. <laughs> uh, and also, I mentioned that Michael Moriarty doesn't have all of his marbles anymore. Uh, he spoke in a weird, affected British accent. It really? <laughs> yes. Whoa. Uh, which was really weird because, like, early in his career, he had kind of a, a higher-pitched, honey-like voice. Mm. And then later in the 90s, he, after the cigarettes had started to take their toll, he talked like this. No, he talks kind of like this. That's so weird. Yeah, that's really, really weird. What about the documentary, Will? I don't want to talk about the documentary. <laughs> the documentary had some good stories in it. But me and you got to go see a movie last night, which was Wolf Warrior 2. Okay, so we had the greatest double feature last oh my night. We'll start, we'll start with Wolf Warrior 2. This was your... I didn't know about this movie, but it was playing at the Young Dundas. Yeah. Wolf Warrior 1 I had seen. It came out a few years ago. It was a film that was notable for starring Wu Jing, also known as the main fighter that Donnie Yen fights in SPL. He's also the star of SPL 2. And in Wolf Warrior, he directed, wrote it, starred it, choreographed the action. Scott Atkins was the villain in the movie who uh, regularly listens to his podcast, know that I love. Movie's not that good. Mm. Fairly disappointing. And it's a Chinese film. Yeah, Chinese film. Yeah. Very uh, propagandistic, like <laughs> all about, yeah, China, China, China. Massive hit in its home country. Mm-hmm. So when the second one uh, was announced that it was coming out, I was like, yeah, who cares? I don't like the first one, so I'm probably not going to check it out. But then reviews started trickling through that it was like a big action movie. Like they actually went in and like made it exciting this time and it had martial arts in it. So I decided, all right, let's get the gang together. We'll... Uh, Peter Koplowski, Steve Kostansky, Pierce Dirks, we're all going to go and watch Wolf Warrior 2. Hopefully it won't disappoint. And it was really fun. It's so much fun. Uh, (laughs) I cannot think of the last time that I saw a movie that big, dumb, action-packed, and genuinely fun. Like, not Michael Bay, like, this is bad, but I'm still finding it amusing fun. Well, also, I'm so tired of, like, you and I will go see Chinese action movies at the Young and Dundas all the time, and they're all so boring. Yes. They're all two-and-a-half-hour, like, historical propaganda films, Mm. and this one is an exploitation movie. Straight. It's a canon film. That's what it is. Yeah, it's action-packed. It's super violent. Uh, (laughs) It's very problematic. Yes. A lot of it is set in Africa, Mm -hmm. um, and there are, like... I have to say that the actual African people are not portrayed in a racist light. Like, there's no stereotypical <laughs> caricatures. The issue is that they are mowed down like they are nothing, endlessly. Yeah. <laughs> like, it. the movie feels the need that before you can have Wu Jing kind of, like, let loose and start killing bad guys in hilariously creative ways, mm-hmm. which includes breaking through a window, catching a piece of glass in the air as he falls to slit mm-hmm. someone's neck. He needs to witness about 300 yeah. African people get killed. But like this is this kind of reminds me of what Hong Kong movies used to be mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Dumb and full of action and really violent and offensive. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But still... 
like well made enough and creative enough yeah. and filled with hilarious melodrama. Yes. Like that's something that I miss from like Hong Kong action movies of these days is they're often like very slight in the way they portray stuff mm-hmm. while like um Wolf Warrior 2 has a reveal happen that is done in the most hilarious way. And it's also a film that has a climax that goes on and on and on in ways that I haven't really seen in Chinese cinema in a really long time. And also great action scenes, including a hilarious one take um, (laughs) opening sequence that has the best underwater fighting you will ever see. I remember seeing that and thinking, God, if this movie can't possibly keep this up. It's going to get boring really soon. And you know what? It, didn't. it never got boring. Yeah. I was never bored watching oh, the movie. Also, a lot of guilos. <laughs> oh, that's the best part. All the villains are Americans. In a way that I guess is supposed to be kind of offensive in the modern day parlance. Because like it insinuates that the Americans are the bad guys. To the point that Frank Grillo from the Purge series, who's the main villain, uh, at one point goes, You're just inferior to us. Yeah, well, I it's mean, fun. I love it. It's I love fun, that and shit. I like uh, white guy actors who look like they found them at the bus station and <laughs> yes. were like, "Hey, want to be in a movie?" Well, all the villains in this movie are all stuntmen yeah. and not actors, yeah. which is great. So then, from there, we went straight to the light box to see a little movie called Hard Boiled mm-hmm. on on thirty five millimeter. Yeah, uh, John Woo's magnum opus. Yeah. The best action film of all time. Does it hold up? Yeah, well, of course it does. It's the best action film of all time. And, you know, it's great to see it was a sold-out screening. All of the Toronto people were there. Well, the Will Sloan podcast family was there. Yeah, Luke Savage was there. You were there. My my whole podcast universe was there. Uh, (laughs) And it was a fun time. Like like I said uh, twice before, it's the best action film of all time. There's nothing subjective about it. (laughs) Like, if someone... I actually heard some people not very impressed by the movie when they were leaving the theater. And... What do you want? <laughs> yeah, like, those people are are dumb. Like, yeah. they were like, why is the movie called Hard Boiled? Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. And I think the surprising thing is that when Colin Getty, the former Midnight Madness programmer, who introduced the screening, said, who hasn't seen Hard Boiled? Seemingly half the audience raised their hand. Yeah, that was incredible. Which, I just gotta say, if you're listening to this and you're, you you like action movies, like, I can understand if you don't like them, like they're not your thing. Mm-hmm. But if you like them and you have not seen John Woo's Hard Boiled, you need to go see it right now. You know, as I was watching this movie, I've seen it like, I don't know, ten times. Yeah. And yet, whenever I see that hospital battle i'm still always thinking god i hope they don't kill the babies <laughs> you know it is a movie and i'm always shocked at that part where like people are running out of the hospital and the villains mow them down yes that, i always find that upsetting it, it's a movie that michael bay took all the wrong lessons from <laughs> because for all intents and purposes hard-boiled is one amazing shot after the other oh yeah but it tells a story in the way that it uses those shots yeah. and that's why it's the greatest